here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. All right. Well, I- I'm so excited for this conversation. I have with me Corinne Van Hook Turner and Dante Wimberly. Uh, here on The Coolest Show. Corinne and Dante, how y'all doing? Doing pretty good. Dante, how you doing over there? Uh, I'm doing good. Um, traveling. Uh, just came back from Massage, so I'm feeling really relaxed, uh, feeling really good, happy to be on the show. Oh, that's what's up. You getting the massage before the climate interview? That's what's happening. You know, nothing major. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. A lot of folk don't know that in the movement, you got to, your health is your wealth. And I'm a big proponent of that. And we have too many stressed out activists. <laughs> and you can't do this work if you bitter, you jaded. And for you, you can't do this work if your muscles tight. So we were, we happy that you, you went there and, and, and did that. That's amazing. Well, that's what's up. So Corinne uh, Van Hook Turner, and I love saying the entire name. Tell us uh, uh, who is, for those who don't know you, who is Corinne Van Hook Turner? Ah, such a big question. So you want the brilliant and brief version? <laughs> I want whatever version, I want whatever version you, you, you got. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so again, hello, um, you know, Corinne Van Hook Turner is long enough, but if you throw my middle name in there. Uh, when I do my initial, it's Corinne Lena Van Hook Turner. Uh, my real mm. name is after Lena Horn. Um, I Love am, that. yeah, I was born uh, June 22nd, so my birthday is going to be uh, Tuesday. Uh, I go by she, her pronouns. Um, I am the descendants of um, both um, an African American and um, Indigenous father and um, a Puerto Rican um, Taino native mother. Um, so that is part of my ancestry uh, who met uh, on the East Coast. And then brought myself and my siblings over uh, to the Bay because they said New York wasn't a place to raise children. Um, And I'm the youngest of four. Um, So I have three other older siblings. Um, I am currently, uh, ironically, uh, youngest of four and a mother of four. So in the background behind me is um, my oldest daughter. I have two boys and two girls. And for those who listen on the podcast, describe that picture. Ah, I will. Um, so this is, um, my daughter's wrap up of the season, um, championships for hopes, uh, classic, which happened at the end of May. Um, she qualified, she's basically number two in the nation as a 12 year old gymnast. Um, after winning the silver medal on the all around, she won gold and, uh, on floor and beam. Um, at that competition. And so that's basically pre-elite. So her goal is to be like Simone, essentially. And the thing, the, the, the great thing about this is in Simone Biles, right? The GOAT. Um, the great thing about this competition was, is that it was the same competition that everyone was talking about Simone's double-double. She competed right before that happened on the same equipment, all of that. So she was there. And so they were talking about her on Twitter. Someone posted on Twitter her leotard because not a lot of folks wear. She has a fist, a fist in rhinestones on our leotard and they talk about how that's really, you don't see that, you see it in college sports, you don't see that in elite gymnastics. Um, so that of course got passed around. It got a lot of love, it got a lot of hate too, uh, but the powerful part about it was that Simone Biles reposted it. So she's got Olympic dreams for sure. Um, she's driven and she's a 12 year old with a full-time job of her own. She trains um, every day except for the weekend um, all day. How is that? Uh, one, being an activist, and being a mom of a of an athlete who has Olympic dreams, it's a lot, uh, you know. Um, I mean, but it's all it's all very uh, important, right? This this work, I I don't separate kind of like you know the the work that I do in the movement with you know my family because at the end of the day, it's all integrated, right? For a better life for my kids because I have black children um, and I am a black woman. 
Um, and we are, we have been impacted before climate was even climate, right? But just in this country in terms, um, you know, racism, uh, fighting for our liberation, all of the things, right? And so with these structures, um, you know, gymnastics specifically, you know, we see our excellence shining in the sport, which is really, really rewarding because it, it kind of really drives the ability to continue to create that access. And for gymnastics, you know, while you see Simone Biles, you know, who right now is the GOAT and she's built her team of six, you know, black women like killing it in the sport, there are not many um, people of color in the sport. It is a very elitist sport. It is a very expensive sport. And so, you know, the whole family has to rally and grind just and make sacrifices just so that that can happen. So, you know, it really is just making it work um, and really with love and power at the heart of it. No, that's that's amazing. Well, I wish you the best as somebody who well, I did. I did play uh, college basketball. And so I know what that grind is to be an athlete. And I know that whole process. But Dante. Uh, my dear brother, who is Dante Wimberly? Oh man, um, that's a like a loaded question. I guess. Uh, I guess for starters, uh, my people have deep roots in the South. Um, my family, most of my family, uh, is from Albany, Georgia, about two and a half hours outside of Atlanta. Um, I was born there. You know, most of my family is still there. Um, uh, my immediate family moved to Atlanta uh, pretty soon after I was born. So I lived my whole life in Atlanta, grew up mostly on the south side, moved around a lot, but mostly on the south side of Atlanta. Um, I went to, you know, great school on the south side, uh, went to Georgia State University. So I kind of stayed home for college. Um, but yeah, I feel like going, even though I kind of stayed home, I feel like my world was open up when I was able to go to college, get an education. I was involved in a lot of different organizations. Um, activist organization, social clubs, Black Student Union. I was a part of a socialist organization. Um, so just being able to learn a lot outside of the classroom and taking out taking those experiences from outside the classroom into the classroom. Um, so yeah, I guess my college experience is very interesting. Um, growing up, uh, going getting to be in those different spaces, being able to learn a lot of different things. Um, I'm an artist, uh, uh, I rap, I make music. Um, and so I try to integrate a lot of like a lot of the politics as a, I was a political science major. I'm currently getting my master's degree in political science, um, took a semester off because of the pandemic, but we're hoping to return this fall. So yeah, being able to take a lot of the things that I learned, um, outside of the classroom as well as inside the classroom and integrate that within, uh, the music that I make and try to really shift the conversation, shift the, the dialogue around a lot of different things that we kind of take for granted and a lot of the narratives and the myths that we kind of hold to be true, really wanting to challenge a lot of those things. So I feel like that's my that's my purpose to be able to like, as a young person, to be able to like challenge the myths that have, you know, founded our society and continue to like found our society and really striking at the root of that, really wanting to subvert those things. No, that's what's up. And I'm sure... Man, there's got to be some links there, either in the either in the near future or even in the present with the hip hop caucus. Because that's all we do is hip hop and politics. That's that's it. You know, we we use our cultural expression to shape our political experience. So we gotta we gotta make sure that there's some some links after this conversation. Uh, but let's get to the conversation, actually. So I want to get to this. You know, the good thing with the coolest show is that this show goes in, um, in the conversation of climate justice along with racial justice, and obviously they're both the same. And so tell us about the Young Black Climate Leaders Program. And I said that slowly on purpose because I want people to that to hit them and to dissect that. Um, either one of you can go first, but I want these things to you to kind of hit these things. What is it? Um, why do we need it? And I'll stop there. So actually, Corinne, let me go with you first and then and then Dante following. Ah, I was gonna see it to Dante since you said it slowly, young black climate leaders. Uh, so yeah, but I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to go first. Are you cool with that, Dante? 
For sure, for sure. All right. Um, well, Young Black Climate Leaders is actually, um, so I had named before that um, I am a director of climate innovation at an organization called Movement Strategy Center. Um, Young Black Climate Leaders uh, was a two-year initiative you know, that we were gonna do um, in terms of our youth programming with the organization, which we've done a lot of, um, that was actually just gonna be a Young Climate Leaders program. Um, but once I came on and was asked to kind of take, take it, take the program, launch it, um, you know, at the time, my, my director, was back in what, 20, 2020, right when things shut down with the pandemic, I said, you know, we, I'm, I'm willing to do it, but it has to, we have to center black, black people. We have to center young black leaders um, in this space. Um, it's the time, uh, it's been time, uh, because one of the things that is um, uh, not present is, is the, not just the people of color narrative, right? Like people of color and climate, but actually the black narrative, right? Mm. Like what is it, what is it, what does climate mean? How is it connected to other things such as art, culture, our liberation? Um, our history, which is different than everyone else's in terms of land and this climate crisis that we're in. And we need to be able to tell that story. So how do we take all the excellence, right? That is Afrofuturism, that is rooted in, um, you know, Afro culture uh, of like things like Wakanda Dream Lab, where they're actually dreaming like, what can the future actually look like? Cause yes, there are black people in the future. Like what is, what is that in terms of, and send, how do we center our young black people to do it? in terms of the solutions they're doing at home and how do we amplify that so that folks can can really know about it and learn about it and also equip our young people with resources. Um, my background is um, with education and youth organizing programs. And this really was the opportunity to do something different, right? So we call it a pilot for a reason. It's something new. Um, usually we invite, you know, my experience with youth programming, uh, particularly with people of color, um, is is that you know you have a structure and we're gonna say you're gonna show up you're gonna do this um, but not often do you get an opportunity to actually say here's what we want to do and if we're really centering young black leadership we actually want you to be able to say actually no it actually the young people don't want to do that like that's that's not uh, important in this space or that's not what we need to be focusing on or when it comes to money like you know we're asking you to come and work with each other to work on something. And it should really be about what your strengths, your gifts are, what you think is important to the movement, what your contributions are. So really to kind of switch that pedagogy to say, hey, we want to take a step back. We want to um, not be in the space of understanding that we call ourselves elders because we're not quite uh, elders and we're not quite young people or in the in the between, but actually take a step back and take leadership in terms of what it means um, to hear about what young people want to do and understand how we can support them to do that. And that does include resources. So each of the young black climate leaders that we had started with um, were given a mini grant with their organizations to participate um, so that they had the resources not only to come together in the space to do the work for the year, but um, in addition to that, also based on what they wanted to co-create um, in the program itself, um, you know, we made sure that we fundraised so that they actually had a budget, that they had the power to make decisions over and allocate um, based off of um, what they wanted to create. So I'll take a pause there and I'll kick it to you, Dante. Um, okay, so the Young Black Climate Leaders Program, like Corinne said, is a way for um, young organizers, activists, what we cultural change makers, whatever you want to call ourselves, to be able to come together and to create um, something that we really feel like can impact the climate movement or can be of service to the climate movement, social justice movement as a whole. Because um, because I think it's important and we need it because. I think that a lot of times these things are considered different things, economic justice, environmental justice, climate justice, these things tend to be seen as uh, distinct things. But in reality, like they're all kind of one thing. They're all sort of uh, branches of the same tree or, you know, heads of the same beast in that uh, when we think about climate change and like the industrial revolution as like one of the spearheads of climate change, well, what? spearheaded the industrial revolution, what created the resources for that? And it was the transatlantic enslavement trade. It was the genocide of indigenous people. And those things kind of laid the foundation for the type of like hyper, hyper capitalism that we have today. And when we think about, you know, environmental justice or environmental injustice, a lot of times it is for profit. Uh, 
Black people are disproportionately affected by environmental justice and environmental calamity because of more often than not large super corporations wanting to save money. And so a lot of times black people, people of color are put in, you know, those environmental in, environmental situations because of uh, one entity's want for profit. And so even climate change as a whole, you know, it's so hard for us to get off the fossil fuels because our entire industry our empires were built off of like fossil fuels and people who have so much money today still have an investment in those things. And I think that oftentimes black people are the victims of that. And as climate change, as the effects of climate change start to become more pronounced, you're going to see like more black people as like the victims of these things in terms of like having to leave their homes because it's no longer livable uh, with rising, rising, uh, rising tides or uh, rising sea levels or, you know, smog, uh, continued smog, uh, just a lot of health effects that result from uh, climate catastrophe and the mismanagement of the planet by the powers that be, by, you know, the dominant world powers, the same powers who had empires. When we think about America as an extension of the British Empire, or we think about France or all these different countries, these quote unquote first world countries who established this order off of, um, finite resources and are now in the uh, extraction of those finite resources has caused economic uh, deprivation and climate deprivation. And disproportionately, uh, we are going to be Black people, people of color are going to be the victims of that. So it's important for Black youth to be able to be at the forefront and calling out these hypocrisies and being able to imagine a different future. And I think that's a really important component of the uh, of this program, uh, Young Black Climate Leaders, is to not only identify the problem, identify and give them names, but also being able to think through, you know, solutions, think through what a different world could look like where we're not bound by the same uh, systems in place. No, Dante, as you're talking, I am, you know, thank you for that. Thank you both for your answer. Um, but as you were talking, Dante, you know, you were also giving an, an analysis of um, the climate crisis and its intersections with the economy. Uh, specifically with capitalism and colonialism as it pertains to black people um, here and, and, and throughout the world. Um, so I guess what, what, is the, what is your analysis then um, and how, how is this present in your, in your project that you're working on? How, how, is, how is this analysis that the climate crisis and how it intersects with, with the economy, specifically capitalism and colonialism, how is that present in the project you're working on right now? Um, well, we have a lot of different things in the works that we want to try to put forward. Um, one of the things is we're trying to put together like a, a music a music EP, uh, as well as like a different type of curriculum. And so in the curriculum we've kind of designed, we've tried to lay it out as plainly as possible in that um, even if we wanted to create, wanted to create a timeline in terms of like, you know, scientists can, point to specific pinpoints of like when, you know, CO2 emissions and when like greenhouse gases, man-made, you know, man-made factors that inhibit climate, that uh, make climate change a thing. Like we can point pinpoint those things. And in that pinpoint, we can see the rise of empire. We can see the rise of the industrial revolution. And of course, like I said, what preceded those things were the transatlantic enslavement trade as well as indigenous genocide. So if those things are the foundation. These things continue to persist. And so one of the ways we want to identify those things is being that, like I said, being able to say it plainly, like capitalism and climate change. I feel like the UN will say everything except capitalism. They will say, oh, we need to drastically change our political economy to better fit within, you know, uh, I guess whatever, whatever they want to say. They'll say everything except calling it capitalism. So I think for us, it's important for us to call the beast by its name to 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 lay it out as plain as possible. It's like, yeah, this is it. And this is the thing. And so if this is the thing, how can we imagine different? How can we try to create systems and institutions that uh, better take care of the earth, that better care for the earth, that aren't just extractive, that pour into the earth and if we pour into the earth, the earth will pour into us. So being able to like say those things and being able to make it plain in a lot of different uh, capacities is what um, the YBCL project sort of centers on. Thank you for that. I guess, so, so this is actually a question for both of you. Um, this is maybe, I don't think it's a hard question, but it, it may be this is very, it's funny you may just want to just pause uh, before you 
when you give your answer in, in this process. Because um, this, I think it hopefully will, I mean, I'm sure it will hit you both um, in your spirit when you think about just where we are as a people. So this is just the thing. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you a little background to the, to the question as well. I believe, um, Dante, everything you just said is, is correct. I, I do not believe um, that the climate uh, movement starts with the industrial age and that it, it definitely starts um, with the slave trade and, and in some cases before that with this the extractive mentality um, and also with white supremacy. So with that being the case, the modern-day environmental movement a lot of times puts itself in a position where it, it, um, it looks at uh, where we are as a movement based upon either the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, or even with the first Earth Day. I'm not saying with the conservation, but literally with that aspect. So basically 50 years ago. So one of the things I kind of want to get to is this, is that I feel, and me being from Louisiana and um, having still going through with my community the effects of Hurricane Katrina, I believe that the inconvenient truth um, wasn't just the climate crisis, but the inconvenient truth was white supremacy. And and I believe, like many, and uh, that we we uh, until you liberate black people you can't solve this crisis so with that being the case i also feel that a lot of times our work is based upon the larger climate movement and it puts us in a position where we're always explaining ourselves literally creating projects and programs to say that we exist hey we're over here and it can be said that black people come into the movement through pain rather than privilege. Do you both agree with that? Corinne, I'll start with you. Um, yes, I think that I'll start out with yes, that I agree that people come to the movement uh, through pain, um, black people especially. I don't know if I would say I would say rather than privilege in the context of how we want to define privilege, right? Um, if we're defining it in the context of, again, white supremacy in the system, of course, right? Uh, we are, we have, we are, we are the most impacted, have been historically on all things, right? Um, and, and when we talk about climate, that means the economy, that means uh, the, the ecology, the environment, that means all education, everything, right? We are the most impacted um, population. And so um, we walk through, even just with race, the construct of race, um, you know, come to this through pain. Um, and I think, however, if we were to switch that, cause I, I like to um, not, not think about coming to this movement in terms of pain in that construct, right? That we are brought into, that our, our, his, our the history of our people were brought into. Um, then I would say that we're reconnecting to, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of excellence. Like, like you said, uh, Rev, um, we get asked the question over and over to tell our story, to tell our experience. And it's always in the context of extraction. It's always in the context of they love our culture, but they don't love us. So I feel like we have the wealth and the privilege that's deeply rooted in our history and the traditions of our ancestry that actually position us to not just be the ones in this construct that are most impacted, that are harmed, that are burdened, that have been able to um, really thrive through the pain, and how the construct has used that narrative to say, oh, you don't need anything else because the construct actually tries to say that we're privileged because we're strong, because with our ability to do that through the pain, but actually that it is, it is how, it is our history, it is our culture, it is our excellence of who we are, of our ancestry and all that we've brought and all that we continue to bring that positions us to be the ones that need to be at the heart of the solutions. So when you say, that we are the ones that are most impacted and we are the ones that need to be centered in the solutions. I completely agree with you. And 
Do I think that there's pain there? Of course. Do I think that there's harm there? Yes. When we talk about, again, reparations, we never got our we all of those things that we never got, all the promises that we never got, right, that we're still fighting for. But I think what keeps us going is our joy. What keeps us going is our excellence. What keeps us going is our power, our connection to culture and our uh, commitment and ability to not compromise that right? Um, to not assimilate to a culture that isn't for us, by us, and about us, and doesn't truly center our story. And we have to be the ones positioned to do it. And I feel like it's a constant fight. But if it was just pain, right? What, what would be like the morale and the motivating factor to even move forward, right? To even uh, understand the importance of us in this movement and the ability to change it. And so yeah. While yes, yes, absolutely in the construct, but we're trying to transform. We're trying to liberate, right? Um, and so our pain is our pain is our experience and our, our fact, uh, but our joy and our excellence is actually how we're going to get there. And um, and so yeah, I think it's it's more than just that, right? Um, because we're not trying to be written into other folks' story, right? We have our own, and the fight has been being able to tell that story, um, and especially as it relates to climate, given that we didn't create this. <laughs> We were brought into this, right? Uh, and um, and it's never centered people and it's never centered our experience. So we have to be the ones that are on the front lines every day, constantly trying to change that narrative until it can actually be biased. And just to say like, that's that's exactly why young, there needed to be young black climate leaders. Um, that doesn't exist in, in the ways that our mainstream narratives around climate economy, et cetera, um, do. Uh, because we are not their position to tell our story. We're just mainly positioned to, again, be asked the questions, <laughs> be the teachers, um, instead of being put in positions of leadership and actually power, which is a huge thing um, to actually shift it. Mm. Dante? Um, I think to answer your question, yet yeah, I feel like pain maybe wakes you up, but I don't necessarily think that pain can be the driving motivator. Um, it has to be a sort of like not wanting others to experience that pain or not wanting others to continue to experience the pain and hurt, uh, I guess, from the way I see it, because like I, my political incarceration was like, as a Marxist and Marx talks about um, the history. History itself is the history of like class conflict. Right. And that like throughout all of history, we've seen the conflict between. Um, the exploiter class and the exploited class. And that that is what moves history forward, the progression of the exploited class to try to throw off those shackles of exploitation. And so these this historic class conflict has had a sort of, you know, uh, it has been consistent throughout history, right? It has been consistent throughout history. And white supremacy, you're right. White supremacy throws a unique kernel in that exploited versus exploited in that with the introduction of white supremacy, you now have the exploited class seeing themselves as, you know, a part of the, a part of the, the dominant class, even those that are exploited because of white supremacy, they may see themselves as, you know, all right, or even been afforded a certain level of privilege in the rise of the American middle class. I say American and Western middle class specifically because the amount of money that the American middle, the Western middle class has been able to have kind of insulates them. And I guess it creates that privilege that we talk about that the ability to like be okay with the way things are but that system was built on the backs of the people of color people in the global south and so for us we we can't be okay with it the system that as exists causes pain for people of color people throughout the third world it causes pain and it causes a need to want to make a change and so i guess for me pain wakes you up pain makes you see like wow something is wrong where that privilege for so many people, they don't see anything wrong. They see the system, not only do they not see nothing wrong, but they see capitalism and oppression as the way things ought to be, right? They see it as the way things should be. And for us, it's like the way things are, the way things continue to be, have historically caused us to be deprived. And that deprivation gets us activated and wants us to make a change. And so, yes, I would agree that pain introduces people to the system, but pain can't be the thing introduces people to like wanting to change. But, you know, that pain can't be the only thing that makes people want to continue. It has to be 
a love of, you know, a love of other people, a love of the earth for us to say this, like, we can't continue to do this anymore because it causes pain to others and wanting to remove that pain from others as well as ourselves is the driving motivator for why we want to make these changes because pain only gets you so far. It has to be something outside of that. And so, yes, I agree that pain, pain wants you to make pain. It could be the thing that wakes you up for me specifically, the pain of, you know, Trayvon Martin and uh, Michael Brown and all these different things, the pain of the uprising and the pain of the way in which the state exploits, you know, black people in order to fill up, in order to fulfill his revenue, you know, knowing the story about what happened in Ferguson, as well as the underlying iceberg. You know, we talk about Minneapolis, we talk about Ferguson, we talk about, you know, Charlotte, all these different sites of uprising. And it's always in the media, the narrative is like, oh, black death. While that black death may have been the catalyst, there's an iceberg under there of historic deprivation, historic lack of resources, historic exploitation that causes that, you know, that uprising for that causes the inciting event. Um, and so the pain may cause the inciting event, but in order to continue to envision the future, it has to be informed by, you know, love and care and wanting to make a change for the other people around you and not just the pain that you experience. Mm. Both both of you had beautiful responses to that. I, w- I want to go a little deeper um, in, into that. I think it's important for our audience to just kind of hear. And Dante, as you were finishing up, your response, you 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 went and you reflected on the names of those who have been killed by police brutality. And you then equated that to the pain that that creates. One, a lot of times in this new age of video, of seeing that and literally reliving that, but also just the decades long of the pain that has caused um, within um, that systemic um, brutality. And I guess that's what I'm leading to is that I equate racial justice and climate justice the same. And I, I just for, and this is just, uh, you know, an example, I, I would say, you know, imagine if the movement for black lives was a, was a movement because it's an issue that everybody should be concerned about no matter who you are. But imagine if the movement for Black Lives was started by predominantly white people. And then 50 years later, we all just thought that police brutality was just something that white groups dealt with. And black people were trying to be like, no, this is important. This affects our community. Um, And because they had become so entrenched in the ones doing it, we kind of sometimes forgot that, that, that connection. And what I mean by that is that now we're seeing that those who are first and worst, those who are they're putting petrochemicals and coal-fired power plants and pollution and incinerators and all kinds of things within black and brown and indigenous communities for years, we're seeing that actually the ones who have been impacted by the pollution is exactly the ones who have been impacted by the brutality. But because the ones who have been layering that, they, we, we're now just getting to that almost 50 years later. It's been some times across the board with environmental justice and obviously that aspect. But really, as far as people understanding environmental um, aspects to injustice, what's happening, people are now connecting the dots and saying, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm now seeing that they're putting these pipelines like line three or line five or line coast through black and indigenous or brown community. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm now seeing that 68% of black people live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm now seeing on and on the housing communities that are that are public housing communities that are being destroyed um, because of the, the just the aspects of being close to or around hurricanes or wildfires or those who are coming out of the prisons who are being forced to put out fires in, in California. They're seeing that now, right? And so my point here is that you're now seeing that, but you should have seen that. And so, to be honest, the same way you have people of color leading in the movement for black lives, I believe people of color should have been leading the climate movement from the beginning. And because of that, when I hear young black climate leaders, I get excited about that. But I just want to know that are they coming to this saying that we should have been leading from the beginning? 
um, and we're taking our rightful position to do what we need to do, or they're coming into this movement through the pain aspect, which means that we've been hurt by the climate crisis, we got to sit with the climate crisis, and now we're here. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm leading to hear from me, because I think that a lot of times we're basing our, our movement and our activism are still based upon a larger structure, but are we basing our leadership as if though nothing existed at all? And that we're saying that we have to be here and we have to fight for our environment because if we don't, then we die. That's where I'm coming from. And so, Corinne, what are your thoughts on that now, reframing of that question, of that if the other ethics didn't exist, how would the Young Black Climate Leaders Program just be put forth differently or the same with that context? Thank you so much for that. I think that there's something really important just to even take a step back to understand that when you said we've been doing this, we've been leading this and we're taking it, that, that's so powerful and it's so real, right? Because if we think about the climate crisis in its existence, even before folks started calling it climate and this environmental uh, you know, degradation problem that we need to deal with, we have to remember also to the point of Dante earlier on saying our mismanagement of home and the importance of connecting to our ancestry, right? That our ancestry was connected to being in relationship to the earth, both in our Afro-indigeneity, right? Afro-indigenous uh, connecting to the roots of how we manage communities, our people, our land in relation, all human and non-human, all, hum all living beings, different species together, culturally rooted right there. And then we notice kind of as Dante said, if we look at our history, the transatlantic, all, all of those industrial, all of those moments continue to break away to what we mean by our mismanage of home, of home. the exploitation, the extraction, right? The, the capitalist economy, right? That fuels all of that, right? The climate crisis. So it is imperative that yes, we be very specific when we say we are stepping in to reclaim and restore and reactivate practices, leadership, tradition, power that has already been there, that has been disrupted, that has been stolen because we are on stolen land. We're, we're here being disrespecting in an ecological and environmental and climate crisis land that was, that was stolen. And there needs to be an acknowledgement of that, of all of that. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the pain. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the history so that we can restore what was working before all of that happened and understand that that's why we're well positioned to make and create and restore these solutions that worked. A lot of times when I'm in communities and doing this work and they're coming up with things like, why do we have all of this technology? Why do we have all of these refineries, right? And at the heart of it is economy, prof like the, econ the economic system, profit. It doesn't mean that it actually is the solution because it is the care of our people and our planet in relationship to each other. Um, it really is about the bottom line. We saw this in, in this, this COVID situation that we're in, right? Where all of that went out the door and people actually tried to say like, oh, we're actually probably starting to heal the earth now because there are just certain things that we can't do to fuel this climate crisis anymore. Um, so I think that, yes, when I say young black climate leaders, and of course I wanna hear from Dante, but when, when I say young black climate leaders, it's not to acknowledge that uh, our people, people of color haven't been leading all the time. It's really to actually say that those are the ones that need to be leading the charge when it comes to our solutions. Those are the ones that need to be transforming our systems or restoring really our systems so that we can address this mismanagement of home that has disconnected our ecology, both our personal and um, environmental ecology of our, of our mama earth from our people and our traditions. And how do we get back to that? How do we actually position? And we can't get back to that because we weren't the ones that disrupted it, right? Mm. So what that means is we have to be the ones in the positions of power 
in the positions to make decisions, leading the solutions that have already been there. And I think that that's super important. This, this stuff isn't anything new. Our ancestors have been doing a lot of this for generations. And we, because we never get to tell our story, it's taboo for, you know, non-Black people or, pe you know, non-white you know, people, right? Uh, people of color know this in terms of connection to their culture and our history. Like, we acknowledge it. But is it in the mainstream narrative? Hell no. You know, we like to use word as an innovative. And it's like, there, there's nothing innovative about a lot of these things. It's, it's really just been um, this, again, narrative. And, and kind of cultural strategy shift that has happened over generations. And we are generations in, and it's gonna take us that much longer because there's been generations of that to basically dismantle a system that doesn't work for us. And I think that that's actually at the core as well is, is that we talk about remediation. We talk about working within a system. This system has never worked for black people, indigenous mm -hmm. people, people of color. It wasn't created to work for us. So it's working within a white supremacist structure how it's supposed to. And it will continue to do that in, in a capitalist extractive economy um, that really does ex continues to exploit us to maintain that system. But it really is about a restructure. And if there's to be a restructure that actually works for us, we have to be positioned to leading it. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to happen. So thank you so much for that question. Yes, we have to be able to address the, the history of our pain and our harm and our trauma. Um, and that's so important so that we don't then perpetuate that kind of to Dante's point on other people, uh, because that just makes us vulnerable to not be able to transform the existing system that we're in that impacts us to a new one or a restorative one that we know actually does need to value and center serving us as a community rather than killing us, rather than making us sick, rather than um, using us for exploitation, using us for profit in ways that don't allow us to build our own liberation, our own community ownership, our own wealth which we've had, like, right? But no one wants to talk about that story. Like we've had, we've had all of those things, right? So it really is just about recentering all of it. Mm. Dante, uh, she, she handled that one. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to add another layer here for you uh, to this question because she, 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 she worked that one. She, we say, I guess they say, she, she, you know, she was doing it. I was going to say, I was going to do a clubhouse joke. They, they, they'd be, your clubhouse, they say she was cooking. To let her cook. <laughs> she, she was definitely doing that. Dante, so with, with hearing, hearing Corinne's answer in that process, what do you believe is the role of the artist in all this then? Um, you know, Tony K. Bavar said it quite clearly. The role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And, and so when she said those amazing words, um, how do you feel that we should um, that should help us to inform our view of the climate revolution with this kind of position of us taking our rightful place in in leadership. You know, no, no, you know. How do you feel about that? And what kind of creative aspects should should we approach that work? I think that it's important for artists to be able to create new worlds. I think a lot mm -hmm. of times. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That was that was a that was, that was a heck of a that right there was a heck of a statement. Say that say that one more time for the people to move in the, in the back of the room there for us. I think it's well not I think it's important for artists to create new worlds. I think that imagination is a big part of activism and that oftentimes because of even even as activists, even as organizers, right? When we think about the limitations of the environmental movement and the creation of the EPA, um, it, it was in essence it was a concession. And we talk about like the the quote unquote environmental movement. And even I wanna I guess talk about liberalism in a in a in a way because even when we think about a country like Canada, who's considered, you know, a leader in climate justice, a leader in, you know, human rights and things like that. Um, when the West Wharton tribe was protesting in Canada to prevent a pipeline from going through um, water, sacred waters in in um, parts of Canada, where people were saying that this pipeline would cause like deprivation and cause a danger to the West Wharton tribe, like the government of Canada responded, but what? Uh, Mounties and police officers with guns to stop the protesters from protesting. And so this is like Canada. This is like the liberal, you know, human rights. This is the country that's supposed to be upholding of all these things. And they were, you know, pointing guns at indigenous people that were protesting, trying to ensure that, you know, this pipeline wouldn't run through their land. So I say that because even 
our imagination of like what is possible is oftentimes limited by the structures in place. A lot of times people will say that, oh, this is impossible or we can't do it or this is a non-starter in Congress. Or it's like even just relying on, you know, politicians to be able to be the ones driving these things forward in terms of the decision making or or in the reverse, like how I read a lot about uh, Amori Bookchin, who is a social ecologist who talks about how the anarchists and the environmental justice movement sort of devolved into individualism in that, like, what can individuals do? to like stop the climate crisis. And that's where a lot of the politics has turned into in terms of individual actions to try to combat this. When the systems that were created are so beyond individuals, they are literally sewn into the creation of the country. They are sewn into the creation of like nation states as a whole. We think about Britain and the United States and like other countries, the way in which we relate to other countries, we, like whole countries were created because of oil. You have issues in the Gulf or Arab states in terms of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, because in a way they're seeing the writing on the wall in that they only have this position because of the oil. Citizens in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, there's only a million of them, and they live pretty good as compared to um, uh, migrant workers because of like their wages of oil. I had a professor at Georgia State who wrote a book called The Wages of Oil, and it talks about how because of oil, citizens in these countries are able to drive nice cars and live in fancy houses because of like Britain and because of power and the way in power profits off of oil. So we see it in Canada and like, yeah, Canada was willing to shoot down indigenous people to protect, you know, the flow of oil, to protect the flow of the money. And so our system as a whole, even us sitting in this room, listening to this, our entire way of life is also tied into this system of extraction. So when I say we need to create a new world, it's really important for us to imagine like how it could be different, because if we don't, it's going to be taken from us and we're not going to know what to do because oil is a finite resource. We talk about, you know, what it would be like when we no longer have access to oil or when we no longer have access to like natural gas, because these things are finite. So what happens to our system? Does our economy collapse if we're taking off oil and we're not prepared to dealing to being able to deal with the after effects of how we can live without it you know we talk about easing into it and i definitely understand easing into it but i think like yeah we have to imagine differently we have to drastically imagine differently because if we don't if we don't imagine differently it's going to be taken from us because the earth is self-correcting what we call climate change is really just the earth self-correcting we are acting as a, a, a virus on the earth with the ways in which we're doing things and what does the body what happens to the body when a virus hits it, it, a fever? So in a way, climate change is basically the Earth's fever trying to self-correct itself. And so we won't be able to survive that self-correction. And so we have to do everything that we can now. It has to, and we want to say it has to start with the people in power, but the people in power are dependent on the current system of capitalism and industrialization and oil, right? And so they're making, paying lips service to being able to like oh renewable resources or do a different things but i think it really really we saw we saw a glimpse of what it could look like with the covid shutdown like yeah a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of people lost income but we did see the government for the most part trying to provide for those people needs of course more so overseas and countries in europe xyz because of course they had the empires they had the capital beforehand to be able to provide those things but I really think it, it, we have to consider what would living right with the earth mean. And that's when I talk, I bring up Maury Bookchin and social ecology because he talks about there's a way forward. There's a way for us to live in conjunction with the earth, to not be extractive and to provide for the resources and needs for everyone here. Right. But it just takes imagination and political will. And because the people in these decision making, people sitting in the chair are so intent on living life one way or so intent on the system being one way that like the idea of something being different is so foreign that it's not even a consideration so i think artists have to be the first people to say like what does it mean to live a good life you know socrates always asks the question that's the starting point for any political conversation of what is the good life what does it mean to live a good life does it mean driving this gas guzzling car does it mean being able to be around the people that you love? Does it mean being self-sustainable? Does it mean, you know, all these different things? So I think it's just imagining the role of the artist is to imagine um, different while also critiquing what's here.
because a lot of times that's the big thing about liberals and liberalism. Whenever you critique capitalism, they'll say, oh, what's your alternative? Right. And my my answer to that is like we've seen the alternative in the past before white supremacy, before the Industrial Revolution, before that, we you know, there were there. Was, of course, there was oppression and there was like conflicts and war. But for the most part, like if people have what they need, then like there tends to be less conflict throughout history. So I think we are our goal as a political society should not be, you know, profit for the rich. It should be providing for the needs of everyone. And when we shift our our paradigm to providing for those needs, we will see that a lot of these things that we've held up, a lot of these institutions and a lot of these overarching structures that exist really don't need to exist. And I think it's important for the artist to be able to articulate a vision forward while also critiquing the present and, you know, really getting people to re reassess, you know, their ideas about the current system. Amen. Amen. And amen. Um, I just wanted to just comment to what you both just said this and thank you both for being here on, on, on the coolest show. But, you know, one of the things here, folks who are listening, a lot of folks also, cause this is a show that deals heavily on the issue of the climate crisis. And so we have a lot of folks who are part of the climate movement and who listen and, uh, they 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 say that this show is 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 growing and it's got a great audience and so I thank I thank all those for that. But keeping it keeping it one hundred, um, you know, I, I just want to say that to be clear, um, not only conservatives are racist, and a lot of folks who are progressive and liberal do things to our people, particularly black people and indigenous people and people of color. That are horrifying, and a lot, not a lot of systems. And I think what Dante is saying, I agree with. And countries who purport to be progressive um, do things that are that, that are in line with our liberation and our freedom. And you can always tell um, where the bottom line hits when it hits the bottom line. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things that we see um, a lot of times. Um, clearly, we there are enemies that are easy to see. But clearly, there's sometimes there are folks who, when when it, when it gets you know when it creates their their lifestyle change, um, then all of a sudden, and that's where we get. I mean, this is this is not a funny thing that happens, but this is where we get the whole Karen thing. We talk about and a lot of the times people sometimes with other things like that. We get sometimes people who, you know, purport to be you know one way, and then when it's their lifestyle or their inco their inconvenience, they're they're calling on the system. Um, quickly. So it's a lot here to be said in that. Um, I guess what I really want to get to now is just how do we support and what's the future, a young black climate leaders program? You know, what, 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 what projects or campaigns are you putting together uh, that people can't, that people in our audience who are listening can't support? Cause we, we have to support a lot of times. Um, if we don't support us, then nobody is. So I know that uh, the coolest show audience is amazing and we, we've been, highlighting that. And so um, what's the future of Young Black Climate Leaders Program and and how can people support? I think one of the biggest things is just the sharing the content, sharing the message, um, being able to reach out to different people and say, hey, take a look at this and spreading it as much as possible. Um, things aren't necessarily finalized, but we do have some things in the works that we want to be able to bring bring forth within the next few months. And so I guess us being able to YBCL being able to call upon, you know, the coolest show uh, to be able in the hip hop caucus to say, hey, we have this project. We have this message. If you want to spread this throughout your network to like get them to listen in or to get them to also share it amongst their networks and like creating like a mycelium, you know, making sure that, you know, we're all connected in a way. I think that is probably one of the most beneficial things because, you know, I feel like the message, the message, you're not going to the message won't be televised. You know, mm -hmm. the truth oftentimes isn't going to be from the TV. It's not going to be in the mass media. It's not going to be, you know, uh, put forth in that way. So we have to rely on ourselves and rely on our networks to be able to, like, uh, I guess, uh, sift through, uh, sift through to, to beat out uh, the mass, the mass, uh, the mass media machine, you know. So, yeah, relying on each other and spreading, spreading the message, spreading the content. Um, 
I feel like that's some, as simple as we, one of the most simple things we can do. No, that's right. Revolution may not be televised, but it definitely will be uploaded. So y'all need to make sure and check out uh, it caucus of the podcast and wherever we can upload this process, you're going you're gonna to get it. Uh, Corinne, what's the future of the Young Black Climate Leaders Program? The future is the Young Black Climate Leaders themselves, right? The, the young people. Um, so really hoping again through all of what Dante said, sharing the message, sharing the visibility uh, that this is actually happening, that exists is huge. That's one step in creating the awareness. Uh, for our folks so that more folks can know about it and take advantage because through that visibility and um, an impact and attention, then we can actually get more investment, more people investment, more resource investment, resource both financial and um, skill, right? In terms of we have such a huge wealth of an ecosystem um, of skill sets to be able to like set up peer shares, peer ciphers. And we really wanna make sure that we're growing that. We're growing a network of black leaders. And so I think that that is really the next step, growing that network of black leaders, which means sharing the message, which means um, connecting with each other. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that like, if I can call on you, right? Like kind of like Dante said, if we can call on the show, if we can call on, you know, all of the networks that you're connected to, or if we can call on you to spread that message and knowing that that is a reciprocal thing, right? That, that we're building a community, we're building a relationship, we're growing, I guess you would say, our, our beloved community. I think that is a huge first step uh, because we. one of the things that I don't want to do is lose the momentum. And we know kind of, again, the revolution may not be televised. And the reason why that is is because we, we got to keep it going. We have to make sure that this is an everyday, all the time conversation, um, no matter what we're talking about um, specifically to the program. Like Dante said, we do have some things in the works. Uh, we've learned a lot in this first year and we're taking all of those learnings to kind of relaunch um, with an event that we're gonna kick off online at the end of July. So please do stay tuned for that. And again, that's where we would call on to say, share it around, you know, yell it out, scream it out, show support, show some love, even show up. Um, and we'll make sure that we send you that info as well. Well, let me just say this um, here. Uh, on 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 the podcast live, everybody could hear it, that you have a friend um, with the coolest show, for sure, and also with the Hip Hop Caucus. You know, um, as folks know, I was mentored by Dr. Dorothy Irene Height, and when she mentored me, one of the things that she told me, which was very different, was that we have to have our own institutions and our own mechanisms and I didn't quite understand that way back then. And to your point, Dante, earlier, the Hip Hop Caucus protected us. It allowed us, people not to understand hip hop, so it's allowed us just to kind of just grow and grow. And I think now, Hip Hop Caucus is now grown, but it, it, it grew um, because the goal was to do justice, to support all of these things, and especially things like the Young Black Climate Leaders Program. So definitely count us in as a friend. I want to close with this. I want to make sure that y'all get the opportunity. Is there anything you want to? I missed. You want to? You want to add on and say? Cause I always want to give you the space to, to say that. If there's a way to a website you want to give out or anything like that, because say it now. Uh, Corinne, anything you want? Any, any last words? A uh, website, uh, movementstrategycenter.org. Um, and you'll be able to find uh, of climate innovations work there. Young Black climate leaders work uh, there. Um, also on the socials, um, you know, at Movement Strategy Center on Facebook. Um, and we are actually just a, a plug because we are a fiscally sponsored project now of the Movement Strategy Center. We're growing. So we are in a moment where we are doing our own identity rebrand. So soon to come, once the, the name that we're playing with is uh, People's Climate Innovation Center. Um, and so That'll, that'll hopefully soon uh, be its own website and its own rebrand um, that is leading this, this program as well as many others. Amazing. Dante, any, any words, anything you want to add? You want to add in there? You want to spit something real quick? What, 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 what you got? <laughs> um, uh, not, not necessarily right now, but if you guys do want to hear <laughs> some of my stuff, I am on like um, streaming services, Spotify, Apple Music, is just Dante, D-O-N-T-A-Y. Um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, uh, Wimbo, X-I-B, W-I-M-B-O, X-I-B. 
Um, and yeah, just keep a lookout. Like I said, we have uh, stuff in the works with YBCL. So be looking for new music, climate inspired music, uh, eco hip hop, things of that nature. So hopefully we can get that off the ground and be on the lookout for that. Amazing. Those are our guests today. They are Corinne Van Hook Turner, Director of Climate Innovation at Movement Strategy Center, and Dante Wimberly of the Young Black Climate Leaders Program. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.